specifically. Give us this day our daily bread. Across the world, there are many parts of the world that are either in famine or in danger of being in famine very shortly. And in, in Northeast Africa, in Northern Ethiopia, just between Eritrea and Ethiopia to the south of it, there's the region of Tigray. There's a bit of an independence fight going on at the minute. And the Ethiopian government have gone in with a really heavy hand and they've slaughtered people, they've slaughtered cattle, they've burned crops, and they're using hunger as a means of warfare to try and stop there being any insurrection or any independence movement. And the prediction is that unless food gets into that area in a very short space of time, then there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people starving from famine, an entirely man-made famine. And so when people in Tigray are going to be praying over the next few days when they say that the Lord would give them their daily bread. They really mean it because it might not come to them. They depend upon God every single day if they are believers. Meanwhile, here in the UK, unless we actually make it a regular practice of praying the Lord's Prayer or asking for our daily bread, then chances are we don't give any thought to it at all. We hardly ever find ourselves in the position where we would need to ask God to give us food every day. And yet that's what the Lord Jesus asks us to pray about, that every day we make a point of asking God to give us our daily bread. Now, thus far in the sections of the Lord's Prayer that we've already looked at, our petitions have been very much focused upon God because the, the chief desire that we want is to see God glorified. We pray for his name to be honored. We want his kingdom to come on earth. We want his will to be done on earth. And then after that, there's a shift in the prayer where it moves from praying for these things for God to be done. There, uh, there's this shift in the prayer where we start to think about ourselves and we pray that God would do things for us to consider us. And we petition three things from God. First of all, that he feeds us then that he forgives us, and then that he protects us from evil. And perhaps the, the reason for the shift from the first part of the prayer to the second part of the prayer is because in the first part of the prayer, we're praying for these grand petitions, God's glory for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth. And if we are to see God working in our lives, bringing about his will on earth, then un unless God provides for us and cares for us, then we cannot be used by God. We are very dependent upon God. In other words, it's all very well for us to pray for these great big petitions for God's will to be done. But if anything is to be accomplished through us because we're so weak, we need God to provide for us in our need and weakness. And there's three things then that are brought before us to stress how weak we are. First of all, it's stressed that we're weak because we need food every day to survive. And then our sinfulness is brought before us. We need to be forgiven by God to be used by him. And then our weakness in terms of our threat from the devil is brought before us. The threat of evil and temptation is brought before us. So we need to be preserved from that as well. And so again and again, what's being stressed is our weakness and our helplessness and how much we actually need God. And that's why then we're being urged to pray. 
And this first weakness that's being brought before us here is our human frailty, the fact that we need food in order to survive. And I think that when the Lord Jesus talks about this, he's not just thinking about food, but he's thinking about all the basic things that we need in order to survive. We need water. We need breath, as Jim has been mentioning before us in prayer. We need these basic things in order to survive, in order to exist. And as we think about those things and as we pray about those things, we become intensely aware of just how weak we are and how much we need the Lord's provision. And so the first thing that we that were thinking about is that we are weak and we need these things. And it teaches us that we shouldn't be self-sufficient because we've got this inbuilt tendency in ourselves to want to be self-sufficient. And from humanity's earliest days, this is what we've wanted for ourselves. And when we look at the Tower of Babel that was built in those early days of Genesis, we see mankind coming together, wanting to make a name for themselves, uh, and they're banding together to pr provide this self-sufficient city of man whereby they can be everything that they need to be. It's, in, in essence, humankind saying to God that they are the masters of their fate. They are the ones in control of their own destiny. And this becomes then the whole idea of Babylon in the Bible, all of humanity's systems organized to be self-sufficient and have no need of God. And again and again, when Babylon is brought before us in the Bible, it's this image of everything that stands against God as self-sufficient. They don't need God. And this is why we see Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, and he's humbled by God because of his pride and sense of self-importance. And then when we get to the very end of our Bible, all of the world's systems are portrayed for us as this being this great city, Babylon, Babylon the Great. And what God announces there in Revelation chapter 18 is the destruction of Babylon the Great, how God is going to raise it to the ground and bring all of humankind's self-sufficient systems to nothing. That's God's verdict on the world that wants to rule God out and say that we can manage by ourselves. But even as we await for God's decisive intervention in this world, where he brings all of mankind's self-sufficiency to nothing, we are very aware, especially over the past 18 months, of just how weak we are, how, the, how we are not self-sufficient. We've seen how a simple virus is enough to bring the whole world to a standstill. We saw how even the prime minister himself lay on a ventilator for days, hanging between life and death. And we see how we are not self-sufficient. But even in more mundane ways, we see that we're not self-sufficient because if you try to go for long enough without food, then you start to become cranky and irritable. Try to go long enough without sleep and you become angry and depressed and become sick. And if you're foolish enough to try and go without water for any length of time, you can no longer concentrate and eventually you'll become delirious. And in all of these ways become very aware of how weak and needy we actually are. And this is God's design. God made us to be weak creatures. He didn't have to. God could have made us like the angels of heaven who, because they're spiritual beings, they don't need to eat, they don't need to sleep, they don't need to drink. And God could have made us like that. You know, we don't need to do any of these things. 
But God does make us weak and dependent. And God did it deliberately. And another interesting thing about the fact that God made us in this way is that we need to regularly feed and drink and sleep in order to survive. And this is why we're told then to pray for our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. So not only are we created weak and dependent, but we actually need to regularly come to God and find provision in God. We are brought again and again, day after day, moment by moment, with our own weakness and indeed our own mortality as well. But the purpose of making us weak and needy isn't an end in itself. God doesn't want us to feel weak and needy just because he likes us to feel miserable, just because he wants us to feel needy. No, the reason why is because God wants us to be dependent upon him, upon him, his love and his grace. And that's why we pray that God would give to us. We say, give us this day our daily bread. He wants us to depend on him. And this kind of dependence isn't supposed to be slave-like or debilitating where we can't do anything just because we've got, we've got to ask um, some great master or Lord for what we need. Rather, the, the image portrayed in the Bible for us is, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is great. But the image portrayed for us here in the Lord's Prayer is God as our father. Uh, as believers, we know God as a loving gracious father and he wants us to be dependent upon him so that he can demonstrate his heart of love towards us and we see that being brought out more forcibly later on in this sermon on the mount where the lord jesus is teaching his disciples and then later on in chapter 6 verse 25 the lord jesus he, he says to us don't worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? And then, and then he goes on in verse 31 and he says, don't worry saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. And the image that the Lord Jesus is portraying for us is a beautiful one. It's a gracious, caring picture of a loving father who has designed us to be needy and dependent, not to cripple us, but because he wants to demonstrate his compassion and love towards us. And so as we learn this dependence upon God, we learn something of the fatherly love of God towards us. And this isn't something which only concerns spiritual aspects of our lives that we see here. It's not just that God's fatherly nature is only concerned about one aspect of our lives. Rather, it's concerned with the whole orb of our lives, providing for our physical needs as well as our spiritual needs. He's not just our father with regards to spiritual needs. He's our father with regards to every need that we have, material, physical, psychological, spiritual, or otherwise. And we sense then that if every aspect of our lives is provided for by us, by our Father, then every aspect of our lives is actually holy. It's part of God's work in our lives. Even our food is holy 
And that might seem like a very strange thing to say, but actually this is what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is warning Christians against people that are saying, oh, you shouldn't eat certain foods because it's bad for you spiritually. And he says, no, that's nonsense. He says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving since it is sanctified. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So even our food is holy to God. Why? Well, because the word of God tells us that it's from God. That's how we know it's holy. And by prayer, asking for it from God makes it clear that we are receiving it from God in order to serve him and to work in his kingdom. And so everything then, even our food, is set apart as holy and this awareness then that God is behind every aspect of our lives makes us very aware that there's no kind of secular sacred distinction that we should have in our lives, whereby there's parts of our lives that have got no relevance to God, but rather all of our lives are relevant to God, even the food that we eat, even putting on clothes, even taking a drink of water. It's all from God and all for serving his purposes. And we live then in the constant awareness of God as our father, as the one who provides for us. And as we do so, we become like the Lord Jesus Christ, because there was no one who was more dependent upon his father than the Lord Jesus. We do think about the Lord Jesus Christ as being fully divine. He was he lost nothing of his deity when he came into this world as a man. But coming as a man, he became completely dependent. And we think about that, don't we, when we think about the Lord Jesus lying in Mary's arms. And we often quote the words of a hymn which says, while Mary, oh, well, um, what's the words of that hymn? His shoulders held up heaven and earth while Mary held up him. And we think about the fact that even as he was sustaining all things by the word of his power, he was completely dependent upon his mother. He was completely dependent upon his father. And he lived his life that way, constantly dependent upon God. And his life was one, then one of constant prayer to God. This is why he, we find him again and again in the Gospels, going away from his disciples to pray because he depends upon God. He needs God to provide for him. And just as he taught his disciples then to pray for their daily bread, he himself would have prayed for his daily bread and to provide for his needs day after day. And so the point then, that when we're thinking about being dependent upon God, this is something which the Lord Jesus Christ has modeled for us. And as he modeled it for us, we realize that it's not something which is burdensome. It's something which is a delight to live in this conscious awareness that every breath that we draw, every mouthful that we take, every drink that we take is a gift from the hands of our Father. And the Lord Jesus lived this and he loved it and modeled it for us as a delightful way for us to live as well. And that made the Lord Jesus thankful. And that should make us thankful too. And this brings me to, to this next thought, that the reason why God has made us weak and dependent is so that we might be properly thankful to God. You see, if we weren't to need food, 
or if God was to just, you know, provide it for us without asking for it, then we would never learn to be thankful to God for actually giving food to us by giving us things that we need. But God made us as needy and teaches us to ask so that in asking and receiving, we would actually be aware of where our food comes from, where our, our needs are being satisfied from, and so that we might be thankful to God. And we come back to the Lord Jesus Christ then, don't we? Because again and again, we find him giving thanks to God. In Matthew chapter 15 and verse 36, the Lord Jesus has provided for the 4,000 men there, aside from women and children, so a vast multitude of people, only with these loaves and fish. And we read in Matthew 15, 36, that he took the seven loaves and the fish. He gave thanks and he broke them. And we find this remarkable, don't we? That the Lord Jesus, he had provided this great miracle and he doesn't think, well, I, I, I did this by my own great power and glory. No, he, he's living his life as a dependent man upon his father. And so he gives thanks for this food that has been provided through the miraculous intervention of his father. That's why he gives thanks. And it's interesting that in the Bible, one of the things that is condemned most severely is ingratitude, thanklessness. And when we look at Romans chapter one, and we look at all the depravity that's brought before us, the wickedness of mankind, we actually read that one of the things that's highlighted for us is that people don't glorify God or give thanks to him. And this is highlighted for us as something which is the height of wickedness, that we would actually go through life and not thank God for his grace towards us. That stands at the heart of what it means to reject God. But the contrast, of course, with the Lord Jesus Christ is that he was full of thanksgiving to God. And then the Christian life, which is modeled after our Lord Jesus Christ, is to be one which is full of thanksgiving for God's provision towards us. And tangibly, as of course, this is to be expressed at mealtimes. When we sit down at mealtimes, we should give thanks to God. Um, but this isn't just to be something which is perfunctory, just done out of form or routine, but we should have hearts which are constantly engaged with the awareness, deeply ingrained with the, the consciousness that everything is a gift from God. Everything is given freely by him, even though we don't deserve it. And we've got to be so thankful because he's so kind towards us. And if we could only grasp the extent to which our Father pours out his love upon us day after day, moment after moment, then surely it would make us very thankful people. And so this is another reason then why the Lord would have us to pray every day for our daily bread, because if we become conscious of our need, conscious of our dependence, and then see the way the Lord provides us for us, then it's going to make us really thankful people as well. Because in asking, we acknowledge the giver and in acknowledging the giver, we know how to give thanks then when he fulfills our needs every day. But lastly, then, another thing that we learn as we give thanks to God um, and as we ask God to provide for our needs is that God isn't just concerned about our spiritual well-being but he's concerned about our bodies as well. He's concerned about us as whole people. And I've already touched upon that in the idea that everything is holy 
as believers. We're brought fully into the presence of God and everything then belongs to God. And I just want to emphasize that point again, that God isn't just concerned about spiritual aspects of our lives. God's concerned about us whole, as whole people. Because one of the ideas then that infiltrated the early church and was roundly rejected by the early church was that as human beings, we are actually just spirits or souls and the body is a prison. And your one objective in life is to get rid of this prison and you're free. Uh, and the body is intrinsically bad. And then either that means you can do what you, what you want with your body or else you just oppress your body and you, you don't care for it. Uh, and the whole goal is to just care about your spirit. And, and that's not the impression that we get in the Bible. The Bible's very against that kind of idea. And so the Apostle John, he writes in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, this is how you know that this, this is how you know the spirit of God. He says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. You see, he's really concerned about the fact that people acknowledge that Jesus Christ didn't just appear to be here. He actually took on human flesh. He took on real humanity. And then the point of the resurrection is the fact that the Lord Jesus doesn't just put on humanity like a pair of clothes and then throw them off again because it's dirty, it's, it's contaminated. No, the Lord Jesus is raised again, transformed, and takes his human body into the presence of God and sits down at the right hand of the throne of God and will one day transform our bodies to be like his glorious body. And so... God has made us body and soul to belong to him. And, and you can't divide them up and say one part belongs to God and the one part's to be discarded. That's not how it is at all. Bodily life is God's design for us. Nor is the cross only about washing our souls from guilt. The Bible teaches quite clearly that the cross and redemption is also about our bodies not in the sense of instantly curing us of illness, but if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body, says Paul. His whole point is that when the Lord Jesus Christ died for you on the cross, he didn't just die to wash away your guilt from your soul, although he did, but he died to buy you body and soul for himself so that you would belong to him. Thomas Manton, he was an English Puritan writer several hundred years ago, and he makes a really interesting point here. He says that if Christ purchased our bodies, this doesn't just mean that we have an obligation to serve God, although we do because our bodies belong to God, but if we have been bought by God, then God has a responsibility to care for our bodies. God has, a, has a, an obligation to actually care for us so that we might serve him. Um, how else could we expect to be used in God's service unless he actually provides for these bodies? And Thomas Manton, he says, but Christ's purchase implies his care over what he hath purchased for the interest God hath in us in redemption is a gracious interest. Now, the whole point of what I'm saying is just this, that when we come to God, 
we shouldn't think to ourselves that God's only interested in certain parts of our lives. God's interested in every aspect of our lives, body and soul. And we can ask for God to provide for every need that we have. We don't need to be afraid that we aren't asking for spiritual things. No, because all of us belongs to God. All of us is used in the service of God. And so we ask God to take care of us, body and soul. So how then do we put all of this into practice? Well, it's really quite simple, isn't it? We pray every day, give us this day our daily bread. That's what the Lord Jesus asks us to do. And my emphasis in these messages has been upon the fact that when the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, he recalibrates our prayers because they get out of sync so often. They, they get misaligned with what God really wants for us to be praying about. And I suppose if the Lord Jesus hadn't told us to pray this, then we would too readily discard a prayer like this. We would say, oh, this prayer, it's so self-focused. This prayer, it's so focused on, on the body. It's not focused on spiritual matters. And we would say, well, we're not going to pray too much about that there. But here the Lord Jesus, he, he brings us into line and he says, I want you to pray about this. I want you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And as we do that, we realize that actually this isn't self-centered because there's nothing more humbling, more self-deprecating than to come into the presence of God and say that we, we cannot provide for ourselves. We are so needy. We are so dependent upon God. We need him to be our father. We need him to care for us, both body and soul. And I'm convinced that if this sense of weakness and dependence really took hold of us, then we would not only be better at prayer, but would be better at thanksgiving as well. Because then we would recognize that everything we receive moment by moment, day after day, isn't just automatic, but it's a gracious, free gift from our Father. And we ought to be thankful at the grace that our Father lavishes upon us morning by morning, evening by evening, such rich, undeserved grace to sinners like us who've been brought into relationship with God and that demands our praise to our dear Father who richly provides us with all things freely to enjoy. May God help us to do that. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that you would forgive us for so often living our lives like we don't need you. We so often